So we're going to be talking about the illness of multiple sclerosis, and I'm just going to spend a few minutes uh, sketching out what this disease does. It affects people, firstly, in their late teens or early 20s with attacks which last for days or weeks of numbness or weakness or difficulty with vision. By the age of 30, people fail to shrug off these attacks and are left with a persistent problem, usually. And then some people, at the age of 40, progress to another phase of the illness where attacks no longer happen, but instead there's a steady accumulation of disability. And if we look inside the brains and the spinal cord of people with multiple sclerosis, we can see that the nervous tissue is fine, except patches where there's destruction. And if you look under the microscope, you see that those patches of destruction involve the loss of the blue staining here, the blue staining from myelin, which I'll come back to. And the cause of this is inflammation around blood vessels in the brain. Inflammation led by lymphocytes, and I'll come back to them. So multiple sclerosis is one of that family of diseases where the immune system attacks itself, and the target is a particularly spidery cell in the brain, the oligodendrocyte, whose job it is to make myelin. And myelin is the insulation around the copper wiring of the nerves. And all of the symptoms of multiple sclerosis can be attributed to the electrical consequence of losing insulation in your wiring. So uh, we'll come back to this picture later on, uh, so I'll just introduce it now. So the problem is an attack on the oligodendrocyte. You lose the myelin. The electrical wires of the nerves become bare. And then two things can happen. To begin with, in the younger person, the oligodendrocytes can recover and repair, and all is well. But as time goes on, and as the waves of inflammation attack one after the other, and the person gets older and less capable of remyelinating, axons, the copper wires, are left bare for too long, and they degenerate and die. And this is responsible for the progressive phase of the illness. So that is a sketch of what we understand in the textbooks about multiple sclerosis. But most importantly, you need to hear from someone who actually has the illness. So what is it like to have this illness? And I'm very grateful uh, for my partner in one of our trials, Mr. Ashminas, to come and tell us what is it like to have multiple sclerosis. Thank you. Thanks for the introduction. So, Alice has given you what is, in essence, a scientific description of multiple sclerosis. And the, the irony is that we know so much about MS, but from an empathetic level, to, to, to talk to somebody who has MS, it's not like he just described. Sorry. Um, the, the reality of the situation is that our central nervous system controls all the functions of our bodies. And whilst that demyelination is occurring, depending on where it occurs, will, in essence, manifest in different ways. And so it's, it's the hardest thing ever to be able to uh, ask somebody how MS affects them. 
So I want to caveat what I'm about to tell you um, with the fact that your mileage may vary with my statement, depending on who else you talk to around MS. Some of the symptoms that we exhibit are common. You know, I've met people who have multiple sclerosis, and I say, well, it makes me feel like this, and they go, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that's the same for me, or, you know, there might be something else, or there might be general, general conditions, but it really does vary depending on how and where the uh, demyelination occurs. Um, and so I just wanted to make that clear. Um, now, I know that most of you in the audience here don't have multiple sclerosis. I hope that you, you don't ever. Definitely not selling it here. Uh, <laughs> uh, but what I do want to try to do is I want to try and to explain what it's like to have multiple sclerosis in a way that you can all empathize. And I've tried really, really, really hard to think of a way that I can describe MS to somebody who doesn't have it. Um, and uh, the simplest way, actually, ironically, it's quite easy to describe here if you can see the stage. So I'm going to do something in a moment, and I just want you to like, sort of pay attention and see whether you notice or not. You see that on the ground? That's my shadow. Wherever I go, it's following me. And sometimes, depending on the right angle, you can't see my shadow. And sometimes, it's really, really pronounced. Like here, it's quite pronounced. You can see my shadow quite well here. The simplest way for me to describe MS to you is that it's like my shadow. It follows me wherever I go, 24 hours a day. It's always there in the background. Sometimes it's highly pronounced, and I know it's there because I'll be exhibiting symptoms um, in a more pronounced manner. For example, um, a lot of people with MS, including myself, are very sensitive to heat. So, if I have a shower or a bath and the water is too warm, um, I will feel more amounts of paresthesia down the right side of my body than uh, I would do if I had a colder shower, for example. And uh, so it, it becomes more pronounced. It's always there, but it's just there more in my face, as it were, than, than at other times of the day. And, and, and so this is kind of how the symptoms for MS work. They're very, very difficult to, to pin down. And so um, from... From the perspective of trying to empathize, I hope that that explanation helps to empathize what it's like to have MS. It's just this, this thing that's there all the time. It's, you, you kind of have to, when I, I got diagnosed with MS 10 years ago, and at that point, um, it was very, very difficult. Very, very, very difficult to, to contend with. You know, you've got this thing that, and it's with you and it's there all the time and you don't know how to control it and you don't know how to manage it. And especially when you're going through a period of uh, a, a relapse, um, it, the, your symptoms are manifested in a more pronounced manner. And so, to put this into context, before I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, I used to weigh 75 kilos. Over the last 10 years, I watched my weight go from 75 to 89 kilos. And through learning and lifestyle choices and all sorts of other things, including treatment that's helped me, which I'm going to talk about later, um, I now weigh 70 kilos, which is great. I feel great most of the time. I still have MS, it still follows me everywhere, but you wouldn't know, right, And if, just by, by looking at me. Um, and so, on a day-to-day -day basis, here are some of the manifestations that I, that I experience. Um, when I wake up in the morning, I feel hungover every day, which is not great because, you know, you don't want to feel hungover every day. There is a silver lining in that, though, which is that when you are hungover, you don't know that you're hungover, which is pretty good. <laughs> uh, 
Um, and um, I have sort of a, a light paresthesia that's kind of there all the time in the right side of my body. So I always have this like tingly sensation in my fingers and my feet. And throughout the course of the day, it will be more pronounced or less pronounced, going back to you know the analogy with the, with the shadow. Um, and um, depending on stress levels or whether I'm getting into a heated debate or an argument with somebody over something, I really shouldn't do that. Um, that will obviously cause my symptoms to manifest. Uh, and so you have, uh, you have to sort of learn to manage the MS. You have to learn that actually there's certain behaviors that you may do which are non-conducive to the symptoms that you exhibit. So you might try to sort of not have a hot shower. You may decide to try and make drastic changes to your lifestyle, as I have done, to try and minimize inflammatory effects from things that you eat or, or that you do. Uh, and, and so by doing those things, as well as obviously getting treatment, I think that that helps you sort of manage your symptoms. And, and, and I'm very lucky from that respect that um, the symptoms that I described to you, the paresthesia, the weakness, um, that's kind of where I'm trying to keep my MS contained, as it were, and just sort of try to manage it at that level and, and, and just, just hope that I don't have, you know, some major relapse that comes along that I can't contend with and, you know, I've, this shadow gets more prominent and follows me all the time. I hope that uh, I've done a, a good enough job of trying to explain how MS is and, and how it is uh, uh, manifested in me over the last sort of 10 minutes. I'm going to hand over to Alison now. You. Thank you very much, Ash. It's a brave thing to come talk about your illness in, in public. So um, it's hard to contend with all that, so we like to reduce it back to a microscope again. And here's inflammation. So this is the challenge. How do we um, stop these episodes of inflammation in the brain causing demyelination, causing the symptoms of multiple sclerosis? And the target for our treatments uh, are the T cells and B cells of the immune system, the lymphocytes. And here is one in the circulating blood um, surrounded by ordinary blood cells. So this is the cell that we want to modify. And in the first case, back in 1990, where Alistair Comston, who's chairing today, was in charge of this decision, the choice was to delete, to deplete, or not. And at that time, in Cambridge, something very special was happening, which was the work of Nobel Prize-winning scientists was working out in the clinic so that antibodies, the products of the immune system, were being developed to use as treatments. And so by using animals and by using tumor cells and combining the two, an endless supply of antibodies could be generated, which could then be put into patients to target specific um, cells or specific products. And that is the monoclonal antibodies produced by the pathology department in Cambridge, and this one happened to be number one. Cambridge Pathology 1 antibody, or CAMPATH-1. CAMPATH-1H, as it later became to be called as it was humanized by Greg Winter and others. And that is a fantastic story that started in the late 1980s. The first person to receive this drug for multiple sclerosis had it in 1991, 
and you'll see in a little while just how long it took for that to enter clinical practice. So Alistair Comston and colleagues back in 1991 and then me shortly later devised a strategy for giving this drug, which unfortunately we have to now call alemtuzumab, courtesy of the uh, European Union. So five days of treatment are given uh, of this antibody that enters the body and depletes lymphocytes, cells of the immune system, and then no further treatment is given for 12 months, and then a top-up of three days of tre treatment is given at this point. And then no further treatment is given. So this is an episodic treatment whose purpose is to give a short, sharp shock, Maggie Thatcher-like, to the immune system, to kill it off and allow it to regrow, to grow back, better behave. And so the hope was that a permanent change would be made to the immune system to stop inflammation in the brain. Now, it didn't always work, and some people have had attacks or signs of MS recurring over these subsequent years and have gone on to receive top-up treatments. And if I can say, Ash, you've had a couple of top-up treatments in the light of new lesions appearing on the scans and new symptoms. But nonetheless, this is a very different approach than the approach of continuously giving a tablet or infusions once a month. This is an attempt at radical re-education of the immune system. So how good is this? Well, I'll give you just a couple of bits of data. So this is the uh, first, three, first two years of the uh, results of the trial that uh, Ash participated in. And this is your chance of not having an attack of MS over these two years. If you have received Campath or Alemtuzumab, you have an 80% chance of not having an attack over those two years. If you received the best alternative drug, uh, and at the time that was Rebif or Betrinterferon, you had a 60% chance of not having an attack in those two years. So in the short term, Campath effectively reduces the attack rate even compared to another active drug. But what about the long term? This is of much more importance to people who have the illness. So this is 10 years of follow-up, and this is a group of patients who have either had two cycles, three cycles, or four cycles of this drug, so at most 20 days of treatment over 10 years, and 80% of them are either no more disabled or actually have improved disability. So this is unprecedented results for a treatment of multiple sclerosis that over 10 years we can say there's an 80% chance your disability will be no worse or slightly improved. So all of that took 23 years. And after 23 years, uh, the chairman of NICE, or the chief executive of NICE, was able to say that this evidence has shown that alemtuzumab, Campath, is more effective and less expensive than current similar treatments for those with severe relapsing remitting MS. So it took a long time, but now this drug is in use, and Alistair, you won't know this, but this year 13,000 people have received alemtuzumab in Europe. That's the latest figure. So it's now out there and being used. But once again, let's ask the question, 
of someone who's actually taken this drug and has this illness, what is it like to have camper? Thanks. So, <coughs> the way that um, alentuzumab works, as Alistair described, is that you um, receive a, a period of sort of four or five days of, 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 of dosing, in essence, right? You're attached to an IV drip for the entire four or five day period, which can get a little bit annoying. Um, and uh, you basically receive an infusion. And um, the way that the infusion works is um, quite inflammatory to the body. So you end up getting a fever, and so you need to take lots of paracetamol. You've got to drink lots and lots of fluids in order to sort of keep your body in, in check whilst it's undergoing this treatment. And um, it's, um, yeah, when I stop to kind of think about what it's like to receive Campath, it's, it's quite dramatic. You know, you're, you're in a hospital bed, you've got an IV atta drip attached to you, you are constantly under supervision for sort of the whole time you're, you're under the infusion. Um, you've got to keep going to the bathroom because you're drinking so much water to kind of keep your body temperature down. You're taking loads of paracetamols. You're taking loads of steroids to reduce the inflammation. You know, there's a cocktail of things going on, and there's lots of side effects attached to all of those things. And so uh, you, um, you end up in a, in a place where you, you come out of the hospital after sort of a week of this intensive treatment, as it were, and, and it really does feel like, you know, it feels like a car crash. You know, you've been through this really dramatic thing. Um, but then after that, some really, really cool things start to happen. So I used to have more of a gait when I was walking than I do today, for example. I attribute that to the fact that the Campath has given me space for my brain to repair itself. And obviously, I've tried to do things to kind of bring about an environment that's conducive to repair. But if I just sort of backtrack for a second, you come out of the hospital and you've had Campath and you know, it's gone five days of infusion, um, you have a much more weakened immune system now as a consequence. And so you kind of need to be careful with what you eat and where you go and who you mix with and things like that for a period of time whilst your immune system starts to sort of regenerate those lymphocytes. Um, but then after a month or two, the symptoms of the actual treatment themselves, like the steroids sort of leaving your body and the side effects that they gave you start to vanish, and you start to build up more stamina and more energy, and your energy levels start to go up. And um, the analogy I gave you about the shadow earlier, you start to realize that actually that shadow is not so prominent anymore. It's sort of there, but kind of going away. I mean, it's not an instant process. It's really slow. I mean, this is like sort of months and years in terms of time scale of that shadow starting to sort of vanish. But um, after sort of two infusions and sort of another year or two after that, um, you pretty much feel normal, right? I mean, I explained before that I have some paresthesia in my hands and my legs and things like that, and you kind of get used to that over time, but then you you start to feel normal. Now, as Alistair said, through the fact that we do uh, MRI scans annually, noticing new brain lesions has meant that I've had further infusions of Campath. So I've actually had Campath on four occasions over the last 10 years. But th that's okay, you know, three to five days of infusion every, other, every few years, 
as, as the price to pay for having really, really large gaps of remission, um, it's really great. I mean, it gives me the chance to rebuild and repair any damage that's happened to my brain, which obviously then means that I have a much better quality of life. And um, touch wood, it's gone in a few years now where I haven't had any more relapses, and I hope it stays like that for, for the long term. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm not endorsing Lemtrada, as it's called, as by a trading name, or Alemtuzumab in any way. I mean, you all have to do your own research and make your own mind up if you have MS and you decide that this is the drug choice for you. But what I can say is, personally for me, um, I really think that Alemtuzumab has made the difference in allowing me to sort of live a, a normal and decent quality of life. Ash, thank you very much. Can we show our support for us? Thank you, Ash. It's, uh, we really appreciate your honesty. So uh, this isn't uh, all good news. So during the course of giving people alemtuzumab, uh, Alistair uh, noticed, uh, and then I noticed, that odd things were happening to our patients. And in particular, one or two years after treatment, they seemed to be getting other autoimmune diseases, including thyroid diseases. And we did not know why, and we did not know what to do about it. But thankfully, uh, Dr. Jones joined us, uh, Joanne Jones, and she has spent a few years sorting this problem out. So um, thank you very much, Alistair. So um, as Alistair said, rather unexpectedly, um, it became noticed that individuals like Ash, who'd been treated with alemtuzumab, were starting to get other autoimmune diseases. So what we mean by this is that the alemtuzumab had depleted their immune system. Their immune system was then slowly recovering and growing back. But as it did so, um, the immune system was starting to attack another bit of that individual. And by far in the way, the most common sort of new autoimmune disease we were seeing was the thyroid. But actually, it's not restricted to the thyroid gland. And we do see, very occasionally, other sorts of autoimmunity. So thyroid occurs in about one in three individuals, so it's very common. Um, but we see about 2%, so 2 in every 100 individuals, developing a problem with their blood platelets. So these are the cells in your blood that um, are important in your blood clotting, so they're very important. And very rarely we see other forms of autoimmune disease affecting the skin or hair, and more seriously, very occasionally, affecting the kidney and affecting kidney function. So the, this is very serious. Thyroid is very easy to treat but the, some of the other autoimmune diseases have much more significant consequences. So we wanted to try and understand, well, why on earth does this happen? Why have we switched off one autoimmune disease, their MS, and switched on these other forms of autoimmunity? And also, can we do anything to try and um, prevent this or reduce the risk? So when you start to tackle these sort of things, um, th the best thing really is to turn to the literature and to find out what's already known about this. And even though it was rather unexpected perhaps to us that we were seeing this, there was actually quite a, a large animal literature on animals developing autoimmune diseases in the setting of their immune system being depleted and then being allowed to, to grow back. 
And in particular, Alistair told you earlier about a particular type of cell, cell the T cell, which is the, the one that's thought to be most problematic and the, the disease-causing cell. When we deplete this and allow this cell to grow back, sometimes we get um, autoimmunity in animals. And the mechanism is thought to be that in, um, when you deplete T cells, there's really two ways in which these cells can return. The first is to develop new cells um, from a, a gland called the thymus, which is a gland that sits in your chest cavity. And it's the way in which we first produce our T cells when we're developing and as children. Um, the second way to, to, to recover your T cell numbers is to expand up the few cells that have not been depleted by the drug or treatment that you've been having. And this process um, I'm going to call peripheral expansion. And what the um, animal studies told us is that if you produce cells via the, the thymus, this is a good way to recover your T cells. The cells um, tend to look like um, very um, new cells. They, the term we use immunologically is naive. They look like they haven't yet um, been activated in the body. Um, and when you produce cells um, via this mechanism, you end up with a repertoire of cells that are able to respond to lots of different sorts of immunological threat. They, and the term we use there is diverse. In contrast, the, the peripheral expansion that I've told you about is thought to be the, the type of recovery that's actually driving autoimmunity in animals. So um, when you um, recover your cells via this mechanism, in contrast, you end up with cells that look um, like old cells. They look like memory cells. They're cells that have previously been activated, and they look activated. And you, 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 you lose the diversity that's very important um, in the way our immune systems function. So some years ago now, we just asked a very um, basic question, which was to say, well, how are patients like Ash recovering their immune system after treatment? Is it via this mechanism, or is it via this mechanism? Um, we've, we've produced a lot of data on this subject. I'm just going to show you a very few um, data slides, but I hope those data slides convince you that at least for the first sort of nine months or so, this is the mechanism by which most individuals recover their immune system, with, and we think this is why our patients are developing new problems with um, autoimmunity. So why do we think it's that mechanism? Well, we think it is that because when you look at the cells, um, and there's different ways we do this, but when you look at them, they don't look naive. Remember, the naive was a, a sign they were coming from the thymus. They look like memory cells. They're very activated. This is just a way of us looking at activation before treatment and then after treatment. And if we look at how diverse they are, and this is a, a measure of diversity, diversity is very reduced um, in individuals um, treated with alemtuzumab. In contrast, if we try and look for measures of the thymus being active, and these are two different ways of doing this, um, what we actually see is that the thymus is less active, not more active, um, after alemtuzumab. The thymus is appearing to have some sort of um, hit <coughs> by the treatment, and then it takes a while for the thymus to recover. And when we looked at individuals who'd had autoimmunity versus those who hadn't, these changes that I've described were more exaggerated in the individuals who developed autoimmunity. So they had um, less um, evidence of their thymus working, and, they and they their cells were less diverse. So some years ago now, we um, sort of hypothesized that if we could increase the way the thymus um, worked, could we help the thymus recover? 
that we might be able to reduce the risk of this complication of an otherwise very effective drug. So um, again, we turn to the literature, what's known about ways of trying to boost the thymus. And again, very helpfully, there'd been a lot of work done um, in animal models, um, both in mice and in this particular study, this was using um, monkeys, so macaques, where a, a, a drug called palifermin which is a which is keratinocyte growth factor, so it's an end, a growth factor that we all have in our bodies. If you gave extra amounts of, of this keratinocyte growth factor, what you could do was boost the thymus, and you could help cells um, being produced by the thymus. So we wondered, could we give this drug to our patients in conjunction with alemtuzumab, and could we um, reduce the risk of autoimmunity? Palifermin had a license for, for um, treatments in, in humans and it was said to be very well tolerated. So Alistair and I put in an application to the MRC um, back in 2011, and we were awarded that. And um, we started our trial um, in, at the very end of 2012, beginning of 2013. So essentially, we gave all of the patients on the study um, alemtuzumab, um, but it was a, what's called a randomized control trial, so half of the patients were in addition were given palifermin, and the other half were given a placebo as I say, all had alemtuzumab. And our study was really designed to test two um, hypotheses or ideas. The first was that by giving this drug, we could boost the thymus in humans. And our hope was that if we boosted the thymus, could we reduce the risk of autoimmunity? And we had a, a, an interim analysis um, at this point, which I'm just going to, to tell you about, which was testing the first of these hypotheses. And again, we come to the theme of the talk, which was unexpected results. So we've just completed the interim analysis. And at the beginning of the study, we'd assumed that we'd either see nothing, no, no increase, or that we would see an increase in thymic output. But what we have actually seen in our patients is that our drug, um, palifermin, which had had such positive and dramatic effects in the animals, had has actually reduced the thymic output in our patients. So this is showing you just one measure of this. Um, but all of the other measures I described, so looking at diversity and how these cells behave, it's very clear that our drug has um, reduced the thymic output in our individual, in our um, patients. So this was very unexpected, and like all science, it's, it's raised far more questions than the study has answered. So the questions that we're currently working on, amongst other things, is to try and understand why does alemtuzumab have a negative effect on the thymus in the first place? And why have we made this worse with palifermin? And what are the consequences of these things for, for our patients? And again, the MRC has been very generous in, in providing additional funding so that we can look at this. And we're turning to animal models again to try and answer some of these questions. Our study ends at the end of this year, um, but we are obviously following up our patients for a lot longer to see how long these effects um, continue in the patients who've received palifermin. Thank you. So to return to our diagram, um, I hope that we've managed to show you that we've been quite successful at um, we've been quite successful at reducing the attacks of inflammation on the oligodendrocyte, and therefore reducing the number of axons that are demyelinated. In other words, we've reduced the number of possibilities for getting worse if you have multiple sclerosis. Now, what Ash told you is that after we gave him Kempath, 
not only did he have fewer attacks, but he also felt somewhat improved, somewhat. And as he put it, the drug allowed space for his brain to repair itself. And we entirely agree that reducing inflammation does allow this possibility for remyelination. But as he also made very clear, he's still left with some symptoms. He hasn't been cured. And that means that he does still have some bare axons, some bare wires in his brain. And the possibility remains that in these axons, these small axons, small proportion of axons, if they're left demyelinated, may degenerate. So this is the next problem in the treatment of multiple sclerosis. We've become very good at reducing attacks and preventing new damage, but we're left with people who still have some damage in their brain. What can we do to repair the brain? Or, put it better, what can we do to encourage the brain to repair itself? Because it seems that one of the problems in multiple sclerosis is not only the demyelination, but also the mechanisms to remyelinate themselves are damaged. They're not working as well as they should do. So, I've asked uh, Ludo to come up and represent the work of Professor Franklin's laboratory. Uh, Professor Franklin is a vet who's been studying demyelination and remyelination for 20 years, and he's come up with some ideas on how to solve this problem. Ludo. Thank you very much for the introduction, Alistair. So Alistair gave a really nice introduction on what the process of remyelination is. And uh, this process occurs thanks to another set of cells in the central nervous system and in the brain. And these cells are brain stem cells. So the question that our lab, the Franklin lab, is interested in is answering how do these brain stem cells become oligodendrocytes? So the exciting thing about these cells is that we all have them throughout our entire adulthood. So these aren't cells that are present just when we're growing up or when we're young. What this means is that um, multiple <laughs> that multiple sclerosis patients have these cells as well. So they have the potential to regenerate myelin, but for some reason they don't manage. So what we are interested in finding out are is um, what uh, factors uh, allow for brain stem cells to become oligodendrocytes, and this process is called differentiation, and which factors prevent them from doing so. So the first thing we decided to do was to find which genes are important in pushing brain stem cells to become oligodendrocytes. Now don't worry too much about the very complicated graph that's on, on, the, on the screen. But uh, it's here just to show that on the, at the top here, we found RXR to come up as a new and strong candidate that can push uh, brain stem cells to become oligodendrocytes. Now, little was known at the time about um, RXR in our specific field, but it had been extensively studied in the cancer field. And what this means, uh, what this meant was that uh, the cancer field had small molecules that could activate or switch on RXR, and uh, they also had molecules that could switch it off. So we could use these molecules to understand the role of RXR in brain stem cells. So these are pictures of the brain stem cells that I've been going on about. 
And um, what you need to keep in mind when you look at these pictures is that the greener the cell, the more the differentiation. So the greener the cell, the better. When we activate RxR in these cells, we see lots of cells becoming green. When we do the opposite, so when we switch off RxR, we have very little to no green cells. So here, what we showed is that by activating RxR, we are able to push brainstem cells to become oligodendrocytes. So that's all very well and good, but can we apply this idea on a more realistic scenario? So here, what we did was take an aged adult rat and we created lesions in its brain that are very similar to the lesions that we see in multiple sclerosis pa patients. And um, what we then did was we followed up the spontaneous remyelination uh, that was occurring in the lesion. And this is shown in the picture here. So this is a transverse, <coughs> sorry, this is a transverse section of the brain, uh, of the lesion in particular. And we can see that these, you can see that these round blobs here are the axons. So these are the axons coming out from the screen towards you. Some of these axons have very thick black rings around them. And these black rings are um, the myelin that hasn't been lesioned. Now, remyelination is quite tricky to see because it's much thinner uh, than these thick black rings here. So to make it simple, we have decided to color in the axons that have remyelinated in pink. Now, when we do the same thing in another aged rat, and this time we give the rat an activator for RxR, what we find is that the number of axons that have remyelinated drastically increases. And if you look very carefully, um, it might be obvious that the black ring around these axons is slightly thicker than the ones in the previous image. So here we've shown that not only can we push brain stem cells to become oligodendrocytes when we activate RxR, but, we can all, uh, but they also are able to remyelinate quicker and better. So let's take this a step closer to us. So does activating RxR have the same effect in human stem cells? So here we, uh, we took embryonic, um, human embryonic stem cells and we did the same thing. We activated RxR and uh, the result showed, uh, the result that we got was very similar to the one that I previously showed to you of the green cells. So here we've shown that uh, by activating RxR in human embryonic stem cells, these become oligodendrocytes. So I hope I've convinced you that over the years we've accumulated lots of data suggesting that RxR activation can push already resident brain stem cells to become oligodendrocytes, and these oligodendrocytes can remyelinate quicker and better. So we think that RxR is a very appealing target um, that can be uh, potentially used for future remyelination therapies um, for multiple sclerosis patients. And a really exciting thing about this is that, as I've already said, it has, um, RxR has been extensively studied in the cancer field. So we already have um, strong activators of RxR as drugs um, available. They have been FDA approved and they're currently being used to treat certain types of cancers. Uh, but uh, I'll hand you over to Alistair 
um, to speak more about this. Thank you. Thank you, Ludo. I should say that Ludo is a PhD student and one of the most junior members of the Franklin Lab, and it's great that you're able to represent them. So what could be better than to have a visit from someone like Robin Franklin to say, I have solved the problem of remyelination in multiple sclerosis. I've even identified a drug that is available for use in humans, approved by the FDA, EMEA, everybody, for you to do a trial on. What could be better? Um, so that all happened, that conversation, in 2011. And it has taken us until March 2017 to give the first patient the first dose of Bexarotene in the trial to demonstrate whether or not this drug will promote brain repair, will promote remyelination. So I clearly can't give you the results of this trial. Um, but I hope the question that you're asking yourself is why on earth has it taken these clowns so long to get on with this task? Um, and I want to make a political point here just so that you can share in some of the pain of doing clinical trials. So getting money to do this trial has not been a problem. The year after Robin Franklin's paper was published, we got all the money we could possibly want bar one caveat, from the Multiple Sclerosis Society. Getting ethical approval to do this trial was not a problem. Finding neurologists and people with MS who were interested in taking part in this trial was not a problem. That had all been done by 2013. And yet it's taken a further four years to start this trial. So here, unfortunately, we have to enter the ugly world of Department of Health politics. For under Tony Blair, a de departmental, uh, Department of Health policy was introduced that said if you do a trial in England, just in England, uh, using the NHS, then the NHS has to pay for the costs of the drug involved in the trial. And for the life of me, I cannot understand why this policy was written down. But it had important consequences because no charity, knowing that the Department of Health is committed to paying for the drugs in a trial, will now pay for the drugs in a trial. So the Multiple Sclerosis Society has paid for every single thing except for the £80,000 that it costs to buy the drugs in this trial. The Department of Health is absolutely sure that the NHS should pay for it, but if you actually ask the NHS, they're quite sure that they shouldn't. And so for four years, I've been arguing with various people. I've written letters to Jeremy Hunt, not one of which was replied. Uh, someone made the mistake of inviting me to the House of Lords to give a talk on innovation in the NHS, and I gave it to them lock, stock, and barrel. Uh, and that had no effect either. Uh, I personally visited George Freeman, Minister of Innovation uh, for Technology in the NHS, and I had a cup of tea. But we persisted, and uh, with the voice of the patient being paramount and people speaking up, finally, finally, uh, this blockage has been 
um, overcome. So it'll be another three or four years before we can tell you whether or not Robin Franklin's clever idea actually plays out in practice. So I just want to conclude with uh, a couple of comments. Um, what I really wanted to illustrate for those of you who are not involved in science and the development of drugs uh, is just how non-linear this process is. So you start with an idea, and that idea was that treating multiple sclerosis by depleting lymphocytes was an effective treatment, and it turns out to be right, but it turns out to generate new problems. So all of a sudden we see people who we've treated with this drug develop autoimmune disease. And so we have to solve that. And you've heard that we had a stab at that, and that didn't work out. Nonetheless, we did make progress. We have ended up with a treatment that reduces the chance of having an attack. But that just leads us to a new problem. The new problem is that people are left with some symptoms, as Ash has described. What are we going to do about that? And so we rely on colleagues to come up with bright ideas to pr promote remyelination. So that is the normal topsy-turvy, curvy course of progress in science. It means that lots of different people have to be involved. So an important partner through all of this has been our friends and colleagues and partners, those affected by the disease. And listening to them and paying attention to what they have to say has been really important throughout this story. But also, we've had to involve people with skills that we don't have. Uh, we've had to get involved with uh, drug companies, foremost of whom has been Genzyme, a Sanofi company, who've been absolutely fantastic in supporting us in our work and getting this drug to market. But we've had to go to people like Ludo, who understand remyelination, which we don't. We've had to go to immunologists like Joe, who understand the reconstitution of lymphocytes. And who would ever have thought that I would know about the thymus gland and the thyroid? So it's a topsy-turvy progress. It involves lots of people, lots of skills. It's a huge teamwork to make any progress in this way. So thank you all for listening.